Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid, so scared to do what I wanted. In looking back, I can see all the mistakes that I made, and I wish that I Talk to me and tell me I can change. Don't be afraid. Just walk with your head up high. Don't be afraid. Just take it one step at a time. Don't give up on your dreams no matter how small. Hi, welcome to Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Today is March 26, 2014. It has been three years since I started the show, three years ago. Wow, long time. A lot of shows, over 138,000 downloads and listens. Remember, you can always listen for free. Download, download them on iTunes. Uh, download it from uh, onto your computer. And share it everywhere. Today, I'm very, very excited to have a really great guest on, and it is uh, Dr. Lance Dodis. It's a D-O-D-E-S, and uh, we're going to talk about The Sober Truth, which was just uh, released yesterday. The Sober Truth, Debunking the Bad Science Behind 12-Step Programs and the Rehab Industry. And I have read it cover to cover and uh, highlighted it with my fabulous yellow highlighter, and it's really, really a cutting-edge book. Uh, a little bit about Lance. He has more than 35 years of experience treating people with addictions. He is the author of The Heart of Addiction and Breaking Addiction. He was. Uh, he also wrote, well, Breaking Addiction is a, a seven-step handbook for ending any addiction. And uh, he was a training and supervising analyst with the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute and was an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He now lives in Los Angeles, and uh, Zachary Totis is a writer based in Southern California that co-wrote this book with him. He earned a BA from Yale University and an MFA from the University of Southern California. So I would like to bring on Lance right now. Hi, Uh, Lance. Hi. Hi, how are you? Uh, Good, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm happy to have you. I heard you on NPR the other day. Yeah, I thought that went pretty well. Yeah, I think so. It went really well. Uh, I'd like to, if we could, uh, read what's on the back here. This is some uh, armed with rigorous analysis, cutting-edge research, and convincing case studies. Dr. Dotis builds a powerful and compelling case against the monopoly of the 12-step program. He suggests treatment that takes a multifaceted approach for every patient acknowledging personal history, psychological and physical health, and the unique road that leads an individual to addiction. 
The Sober Truth offers actionable information for addicts, their families, and medical providers seeking a more intelligent, effective, and compassionate approach to understanding and treating addiction. So um, uh, if everybody doesn't know out there listening in blog talk radio land, uh, I have interviewed Lance from my film, The 13th Step, and it was a really great interview, uh, and I've already asked you so many questions, you know, these questions, but I'd like to ask you again. So why did you write this book? Well, I've been uh, treating folks suffering with addictions for about 30 years, and um, it's discouraging to see the kind of poor treatment that most folks receive. And unfortunately, the problem has gotten probably somewhat worse over time rather than better. Mm -hmm. Uh, From the standpoint of public health, our society uh, sees 12-step treatments as the de facto right thing to do for folks with addictions. And unfortunately, the data simply doesn't back that up. So we have a lot of uh, people who are doing very poorly and whose lives are being destroyed because we are basically offering them a treatment that just can't work for them. The studies show that uh, only about 5 to 10% of people who uh, attend AA become sober members. So that means a a 90% rate of people who just can't be helped by it. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that this really terrible situation persists is uh, something that also the scientific uh, community has uh, uh, been mistaken about. And it's, it's a simple idea. People who do well in AA talk about it. In fact, they proselytize for AA. That's the 12th step of 12 steps. We will go out and uh, share our message. So uh, we hear from those people. And they write books about it, uh, and, and they, they write magazine articles, and they often write letters to the editor. And we are hearing from this very small percentage of people about how wonderfully they're doing. And, you know, they're not lying. That's, that's fine. But it's a, what we call a sampling error. We don't hear from the 90% of the people who can't make any use of AA or are being harmed by AA. They don't write books. No one writes a book saying, I've been harmed by AA, uh, very rarely anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and these people also don't tend to rise to positions of power in the addiction treatment industry. So we are under the mistaken impression that uh, those few people are, are the majority. And in the scientific literature, the mistake is people do studies and they follow people over time. At the end of the study, whether it's a year later, or eight years later, or 16 years later, they end up with a small group of people who are doing well. And then they make this mistake. They say, okay, of these people who are left in the study, uh, a lot of them are not drinking. Therefore, we should encourage everybody to stay in AA. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's simply a logical fallacy. What they really should conclude is that when it works well, it works well. But for 90% of the people, we should discourage them from going to AA because it won't help them. Right, right. Uh, even uh, in Chapter 1, it says the problem. 12-step programs hold a privileged place in our culture as well. This is like really goes along with what you're saying, but I love the way you wrote this here. The legions of anonymous members who comprise these groups are helped in their proselytizing mission by hit TV shows such as Intervention, 
and I'll add shows like Moms, and uh, there's another show too, which totally preaches it. Which preach, well, then you say, which preaches the gospel of recovery. Going to rehab, in quotes, is likewise a common refrain in music and film, where it is almost always uncritically presented as the one true hope for beating addiction. And I'd like to say here that even the shows that don't like AA, like Shameless, they're still promoting it as the only option. Like when Fiona goes to jail and she's in court, you know, if you really hate AA, you think you could go online and find out maybe you'd say, well, you know, I'm going to go to a smart meeting or I'm going to go online to, you know what I mean? Like I'm going to go to moderation management or SOS or something else or I'm going to see an addiction specialist. And then you say this part here, which I think is really important, AA and rehab, have even been codified into our legal system. Court-mandated attendance, which began in the late 1980s, is today a staple of U.S. federal drug crime policy. Every year, our state and federal governments spend over $15 billion on substance abuse treatment for addicts, the vast majority of which are based on 12-step programs. There is only one problem. These programs almost always fail. Yep, that's right. And the uh, the court-mandated part of that is actually been found unconstitutional in over 20 states because you can't, it's a violation of the uh, First Amendment to send people to a religious organization to insist that they go there. And, and the uh, these courts have uh, have found that legally AA is a religious organization, which of course it is for many people. Yes, it is. I want to say it's 25 states now, and if anybody's listening and is in trouble and wants to fight this, I want to send you to two websites. One would be the Smart Recovery website, and if you go under legal, uh, one of the Smart Recovery people, uh, there's a lawyer there, and she has documented all the cases which you can use for your case. And then if also if you go to exposeaa.org, expaa.org, they also have cases. And I would also like to add that I, for my film, have pulled out all of the God references. Oh, my God, Lance. It's pretty wild. This is going to go up on the screen. Over, you know, it's somewhere almost 600 times the word God but or, you know, higher power or something is used in the first 164 pages. And it's not only how, it, it's also how the word God is used, right? And then the musts, how they say you must or you'll die. You must or, you know, this really... Uh, you know, fire oh, and Yeah, kind of language. But if anybody, once my film is done, I will put that up on Google Docs so that everybody can just see that, you know, how, why 25 states could easily say this is deemed highly religious. And um, you can't say, oh, it's spiritual. You know, it's like Ken Anderson. Well, you know, is it white or is it snowflake, Monica? Yeah. And that's, that's my new answer. Um, you know, it's really a big problem. I think that maybe, would you say that this is one of the first books? I mean, Gabrielle Glaser got a lot of uh, harsh criticism, as well as there people wrote to her and said that, you know, thank God you wrote this book. Uh, and some people wrote her and said, you know, how dare you? Uh, you know, A, has, you know, it's saved millions and stuff. And I know your book just came out yesterday. But what are the two sides of the coin that you hear? <laughs> this book is oh, yes. just out. Oh, well, so <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, I, we already are hearing that because uh, um, the, uh, there have been uh, articles written about the, the new book in The Atlantic and in some newspapers, and uh, we were on NPR, as you mentioned, and so forth. And people write in, and, and you're right, the, 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 the uh, comments tend to divide into, into the two sides. Some people, many people, fortunately, 
are saying, thank goodness you're saying this because mm. we have been stuck with this treatment program or with these terrible uh, uh, expensive rehab facilities which are not helping but are costing us all of our uh, uh, resources. Um, and the other side are people who have been helped by AA. And unfortunately, the, the, you know, no one doubts that these people have been helped, but they, they are so um, passionate that they have lost their ability to think logically. And what they do is they say almost all the time, well, I have been sober for you know, 18 yep. years, 7 months, and 5 days, right. and therefore, you know, how can you criticize it, which right. simply makes no sense. Uh, they, they, they seem to lose track of the fact that just because it worked well for them is not a reason at all to prescribe it for, for everybody. It's like saying you took penicillin for pneumonia and it, it cured you, and so therefore everyone should take penicillin even if it's got a, a, a bug that you know, won't respond to it. So it just makes no sense. And then people launch into ad hominem attacks. You know, I must be a bad person. I have mm-hmm. no experience with AA. I have no experience. And that gets into, you know, another myth, which is if you don't have an addiction yourself, then you can't possibly help anyone with an addiction, which is an old, old idea that was partly associated with AA. Uh, and, of course, it makes no sense. It's like saying if I have cancer, I have to go to see a doctor who has cancer. <laughs> It, well, you know that's so true. Uh, really, it's also I, I remember this uh, old older uh, AA person actually said this to me, um, and she said, you know, there are millions of Muslims who never drink. So how many years of sobriety do they have? Do they go around and you know beat everybody over the head and say, I've never had a drink because it's part of my religion? You know, mm-hmm. I've met many uh, Persians that you know, or if they're Muslim, they are uh, you know they don't drink and at all, and uh, but. You know, this is uh, really, really an important, important thing that you've done, and I think that everybody's very excited. I know that you told me that you've sold, you know, quite a bit already online, right? And I want to let everybody know where the Atlantic, oh, yeah, somebody sent me the Atlantic article, and I posted it up somewhere. Uh, I thought that oh, was good. really good. Uh, yeah, really, Thank really you. good. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah the, the, the uh, person who wrote that is a very good writer. Um, uh, yeah, no, I think one of the things about our book, I mean, there have been other books uh, critical of AA, uh, appropriately so, but uh, our book is really, in spite of the fact that we're very critical, we didn't set out exactly to be critical. We set out to be scientific. And no one has ever published all of these studies and looked at them closely. And that, I think, is one of the key uh, values of our of our book. Mm-hmm. Because even though the... Uh, uh, we all know that the statistics are terrible for AA. It's about just about the worst uh, statistically, statistically about the worst treatment in medicine. Uh, but there are studies out there that claim that AA is doing a better job. So people rely on those, and we took a very close look at those studies in in the book, and it turned out that they were so filled with errors, scientific errors, mm-hmm. that. You, they actually didn't show at all what the authors concluded. In some cases, they showed the opposite, because mm-hmm. the studies made, I mean, among their problems are they almost all relied on self-reports. So what they would do is somebody would be in some sort of treatment, and then they'd follow them up a year later or six months later. And to follow them up, they call them up, and they say, how are you doing? <laughs> well, what happens is, again, there's another sampling error. The people who are doing well 
are glad to tell you. The people who are doing poorly don't pick up the phone or they right. lie. So the huge dropout rate in every study ends up being ignored. These people are just left out of the conclusions. And it's like eliminating data that just doesn't fit what you, what you intend to say. It's just not right. You can't do that. Um, and the other well, thing, yeah, go ahead. Well, one of the things that uh, happened in Colorado, and this is a guy that I interviewed for my film who was very involved with AA and left AA and started smart meetings, and he joined forces with the courts, and they don't send anybody to AA anymore because they were tired of the recidivism and the people saying they didn't like it and for all the religious reasons, and, but also that it didn't work. So now when they come out, they give them the option of taking naltrexone, and um, I guess Vivitrol is the shot, but really to offer them naltrexone and then everybody, you know, to go to a smart meeting. And there's people, or get Amy Lecoy's book from Death to My Part. A lot of young women were getting handed that because she and I drove out there to meet um, this particular man who was doing great outreach work. And they just changed the whole paradigm there. You know, but it well, wasn't... That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah it's and, good to hear. I mean, maybe, you know, and it's like uh, it was a small enough state that it wasn't infested, like California is, with AA members in all these high, powerful positions, as you mentioned, and I do think that uh, it's important for people to know that the research, if AA, uh, you know, when Prohibition ended in 33 and AA sort of these two men came together in 35, the book gets released in 39, he sends out 250,000 postcards, he gets introduced to Rockefeller and all these people. 1944, he meets Marty Mann, or is it, yeah, and she knows everybody. And she, her lover is um, the editor of Vogue magazine. And then she, you know, he gets introduced to all the people in the magazine world and gets all this free publicity. And then there was no, you know, real cure back then for alcoholism. And uh, so everybody in all those universities uh, actually were AA people. And they got in there and started processing. And so they found something, but it got in there a long, and this is only something after three years of making this film, Lance, that I have only found out how entrenched uh, it is because I read Marty Mann's biography and we're like literally pulling out what, what happened there. I mean, she, you know, Mary Pickford gave her money and she mm-hmm. came out here and then was the, you know, the person who was the consultant for whether it was the Days of Wine and Roses, all those early films that ended with like going into an AA meeting. And, right. you know, it, it was all very, very, very strategically planned. It was not a grassroots movement by any stretch of the matter. Mar- we also found out that Marty Mann was given millions by the head of IBM. Did you know that? Uh, that one I didn't know. Yeah, so she was given, it was, it was flatlined. AA was flat, and she was like all over the country speaking at Rotary Club. She created the International Council on Alcoholism, which is now the NIDA. And she, you know, uh, was speaking, but it was still flatlining. And then this man, uh, big guy at IBM who had millions, was like, oh, this is fabulous. So I guess he had, a, you know, I don't remember if he had his own problem or what it was. And so... You know, it poured in millions, and she began to, that's when we saw those little, you know, posters with, this could be you, you know, an alcoholic, and they showed, you know, pictures of everybody, Um, even Sarah T., my name is Sarah, and I'm a teenage alcoholic, totally influenced me, and I thought, oh, well, that looks nice, and that looks safe, oh, yeah, did they say, oh, by the way, there's like, you know, 13 steppers there that are going to prey on you, even in the 70s. But some of this, Lance, I was like really shocked, and this is just from the research we're doing over the last two months. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the things that we said in the book is that between uh, the onset of AA in the 30s and about 10 years later, the medical profession completely reversed itself. When uh, when the big book came out, it was reviewed uh, by the American Medical Association. They said this is a bunch of garbage. It just right. doesn't mean anything. And right. some other people said it. By 10 years later, they were endorsing it. And yet nothing had happened scientifically in those 10 years to make them change their minds. It was all its political. Uh, there was no study, and of course there never has been a, a really good study uh, that shows that AA has uh, effectiveness. Uh, but uh, something was going on uh, among uh, individuals that uh, led them to change their minds. Well, what happened was that they were all AA members in those positions. Right. So what I've learned recently, I had a guy on, and I'm going to deal with this in my film, that AA members have gotten so entrenched in our medicine and science. Well, maybe, you know, the science, let's just say medicine. So these guys are called, you know, doctors in recovery. Uh, we have pilots. You know, Birds of a Feather was created in the 70s. But the doctors in recovery, we have judges in recovery. We have the Lawyers Association. And, you know, let's start with the medical, though, is that they were in control. And they started to, you know, sway it. I really think that they single-handedly stopped real research that we could have some real answers. And I want, I want to just talk about what happened last night because I went to a meeting. I, went, I brought this woman who's working with me on my film to a meeting in West L.A. And this meeting, I went there because I heard there is a sexual, there is a predator there. And um, he was there. And, but in the back was a woman who was completely crazy talking to herself, sitting in the back, and another guy who looked like a gang member. Um, it was sprinkled with 10 newcomers, a couple of, you know, sprinkled old-timers, uh, a woman who had been to prison three times, an old lady talking about her time in prison and how much she liked snorting heroin and drinking. And uh, the people, in the, so the girl in the back was really angry and obviously has a mental problem. She really has, you know, some kind of an issue. And the guy with all the tattoos said something to her, pissed her off, and she's like, well, why are you here? And, like, you know, they're reading now. The meeting is going on, but, like, there is no sergeant at arms. There is no real person who feels empowered to say, you know, be quiet back or whatever. And he goes, yeah, well, I'm here for the girls. And she gets really mad, and she goes, well, they're all out here. And then he says something else, and then she throws cake at his face. So we're sitting in the back, and we can hear this and feel it, right? Yeah. And... Then I see a guy to my right who looks like he's 20 with glasses, like a total together young man, who I said to myself, to my assistant, I said, there is a DUI guy. He doesn't belong here. And, you know, he just, you could just see it. And so I have these pamphlets that I've made for, if, you know, to show that, you know, it's against your First Amendment rights. And, but I'm sitting here going, what the WTF is going on here? That a court is sending this beautiful young kid into a place where, first of all, there's no one in charge. There is no program there, really. They're praying at the beginning. They're praying at the end. And you have these crazy people. And I said to her, I said, somebody's going to come in here with a gun soon because they've done it in other places. This woman, and then I watched this woman. I stayed through the whole meeting so that I could see who was going to get a court card signed so I could give them my literature and say, they cannot send you here you can call me and I will be an advocate. I will go to court with you. I will go to your lawyer with you and say, this is against his First Amendment rights. Plus, you are putting him in a dangerous place. 
if you were to come to this meeting that I went to last night, you wouldn't send anybody that you love or knew or cared about to that meeting with these crazy people. So she leaves the back of the meeting after she has this you know, little thing going on with the guy that she throws the cake in his face. And then she goes to the front, and you can see that she has a huge suitcase. And another guy shares who also looks very, very creepy. And she walks by and, you know, and puffs out, you know, and she's angry, and she leaves. And I thought, that woman has been assaulted by some of these guys here. Because, I've, I mean, I interviewed women who told me the stories of what they've done to women who need to be on medication. A very, very pretty woman she was, even though she looked, she was homeless. You know what I mean? That's... Uh. What our country is doing now, you could go to another meeting where it's going to look all pretty and everybody's in a suit and a lunch meeting, right, in Century City. But there's no, what's the word, control, right? There's no, uh, um, you'd never know who's going to be at these meetings. And, you know, as much as I hate going now, and I've only gone because I, I feel like it's really horrible that you could court order, and they don't know. He goes, I had no idea. When I handed him the pamphlet and told this young kid, he goes, wow. He goes, I said, it must be really hard. He goes, oh, my God. He said, it's brutal to sit through these meetings. And I said, well, you don't have to. They cannot force you to do that. It's already been fought for you, but nobody knows their rights, Lance. I mean, this is a big problem here. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's no question about it. It's a good thing you're making the, the film. Um, the 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 idea of AA being completely unregulated was part of its original idea. Uh, it's intentional. It's not a it's not a flaw in the system. It's what they consider a feature. But um, in fact, it it uh, it means that you have no there's no uh, there are no standards in AA. Mm-hmm. So you can do whatever they want. And we've all heard terrible stories about uh, not only the kind of thirteenth stepping uh, that you're talking about, but um, just people being yelled at by the uh, folks who tell them that the, they're they're stupid and wrong. They have character flaws, and they have to get with it and get closer to God. And you know, we know this is true because people tell us. And we have right. a few uh, stories about that in the book from people who who uh, uh, voluntarily submitted their experiences. Uh, some AA groups are, of course, uh, better than that. But one of the things that I think is so interesting is that AA itself tells people. Uh, most people in AA say, find a meeting that you like. And that's a very interesting thing to say, because if it were penicillin, we wouldn't say find a penicillin manufacturer that you like, because we know penicillin actually does something by itself, no matter who makes it. Um, Mm -hmm. So what they're really pointing to is that when AA is helpful, it's helpful because of the camaraderie, because people feel supported uh, and they feel there's some structure that they need. But for a problem like addiction, which is deeply rooted and involves a lot of a, a person's emotional life, um, it's not surprising that not many people can deal with that effectively by being in a friendly fraternity. Some people mm-hmm. can, and there's your 5 to 10%. But to think that a, a group which has uh, is based on uh, on support, support is fine, but to think that support itself uh, would, would solve the problem is simply un, unrealistic. In fact, there are some studies looking at the effectiveness of the, the, the actual steps themselves, and it turns out that the 12 steps actually don't have too much to do with the effectiveness of AA. As I said, mm-hmm. it, it's more, these, it's more the, the, the general support. And as far as the, the religious part, 
um, there are some studies that interviewed people who are in AA and who are actually staying in AA, and they asked them, well, what part of the steps do you think were, were you liked and which parts you, did you not like? The parts that, that were the least liked were the religious parts. And mm-hmm. they, they, people called them off-putting, and the, the researchers said that was the exact term that most people use. So they don't find it useful. And the fact is that if, if, you were going to, if, if you were going to ever have a group like AA again, if you were going to invent it now, you wouldn't do it the way they, they have it. You would say, let's right. make a support group. Let's not call it treatment. Let's call it support. Let's leave out the religiosity for the people who can't use it. Uh, let's not push people into it. And, of course, from a public health standpoint, don't push anybody into it at all. Only say, mm-hmm. oh, if, you, if it's, you're getting something out of it, fine. If you're not, by all means, stay away because it's not for you. You're just wasting your time. Right, right. Uh, if you're just uh, listening in, we're listening to um, author Dr. Lance Dotis, who wrote The Sober Truth, Debunking the Bad Science Behind 12-Step Programs and the Rehab Industry uh, with uh, Zachary. And he also wrote Breaking Addiction, a seven-step handbook for ending any addiction and the heart of addiction. Uh, now, there are some really great parts. I want to just tell all the listeners that uh, if you are on all the anti-AA Facebook pages and blogs. You're going to love this book. Uh, it's out on Beacon Press. That's who. Um, that's a um, what distributed by Random House or Beacon Press is it distributed by whatever it's Beacon Press and Random House. But that there's these stories that people wrote in to Lance and they are really uh, fantastic. They're just them saying you know what happened to them and what they don't and don't like. But what I'd like to uh, talk about is in the back, oh boy, uh, the myths. You have the myth number one, two, three, the myth. Which myth would you like to talk about? <laughs> well, let me talk first about the myth of um, uh, that, that uh, it's a good idea to have a tally system the way that AA. Yeah, has. I love this. Yes, please do. Mm-hmm. Oh, so as we all know, uh, in AA, it's it's the tradition that after you've been abstinent for 24 hours, you get a 24-hour chip, and then a week, a month, a year, and so forth. The way it's supposed to work is that you keep the chip with you, and it's supposed to encourage you to to stay uh, abstinent. Because if you have even a, one drink, then you lose your days of sobriety in AA, and you go back to zero. Now, that system is incredibly cruel it has no scientific validity. It's clinically wrong because if you had, let's say you were drinking every day. Now you haven't had a drink for six months and you have a beer. You're doing great, mm-hmm. you know. But right. when AA, because it is so rigid and moralistic, it says you're going back, you go back to zero. Mm-hmm. An enormous number of people are depressed, discouraged, and enraged by this, as they should be. Not the depression, but they should be enraged by it. Right. And you know, it's it's just a terribly destructive uh, thing, which which makes people feel worse about themselves, even if they're actually doing doing well. And and that touches on, of course, the other reason why it's har- AA can be so harmful to the ninety percent of the people who can't use it, which is AA is never wrong, according to AA. AA is the right thing for everybody, and if you're not be able to make use of it, if you're in that ninety percent. Well, they say you're just not working hard enough. And I, one of the interesting things is, if, if I, if you look at the comments on on either my uh, 
my uh, a blog on psychology today or or my on my webpage the people when people complain uh, about this they say um uh, uh, they they say uh, uh, well look you know we're uh, uh, we're we're doing we're doing well so don't complain but the problem is that when you expose other people to a program that claims to be always right you make them feel like they are failures and people regularly are told that they have failed the same incidentally uh, applies to the rehabs which uh, all say we're never wrong if you're right. not doing if you're not doing it, uh, you know, get, get come back. Oh, what I was going to say is that the com- the commenters often say it works if you work it. You know, they quote the big book. Oh my God! Yeah, right. They say that at the end of the meeting and shake hands after the Lord's prayer. Right, but it's yeah. that's it's, there's a good example of circular reasoning. It doesn't work if you work it. It works for some people who work it because it works for them. But 90% of the people, no matter how hard they work, are not going to get anything out of it because it's not right for them. Uh, so it's a, it, it makes people feel uh, a lot worse than if they had never gone. Now, um, the, the other one that I think is really powerful is myth number eight. People with addictions have character defects, and I have like highlighted, uh, especially you know some of this. Can you talk on that? Yeah, I mean the yeah. big book has a long list of alleged character defects. <laughs> Almost anything you can say that's unpleasant about a human being is is in that. That list, of course, it's all wrong. Uh, people who suffer with addictions are basically exactly the same as everybody else. So we all have some, if you want to call them defects. You know, none of us is, is perfect, and right. it's, it's wrong to say that uh, mm-hmm. people with addictions are morally inferior, mm-hmm. which again touches on the same uh, the the fundamentalist origins of AA that. You are bad and, and, and sinful, really, and so you have to make yourself closer to God in order to be cured. That was the message, that was the, the, uh, message of the Oxford group, uh, which was what led to, uh, to AA. And it's just, it's just it's punitive and it's wrong. Yep, it sure is. Uh, let me see. The other one is about the, um, well, denial, uh, myth number 11. So it says um, denial is just a river in Egypt or something. This, and this is what you ta- touch on, really, a solution that I really find very intriguing, and I'm sure other people who've read your other books, about helplessness. So can you touch on that, how the whole thing yeah. of saying you're in denial and helplessness? And... Yeah, it turns out that most of the people I see who are in, quotes, denial, that is, they obviously have alcoholism and they say that they don't have alcoholism, um, the, the denial isn't really that they're they're not smart enough to see what's going on. Uh, it has nothing to do with that, and it's it's not that they're they're just liars or they're crazy. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's that for many people in our society, saying that you have alcoholism is an acknowledgement not only of being bad, but to use the AA term, but that you uh, are out of control of your life because you are powerless over alcohol alcohol controls you you know step step one we admitted we were powerless and people don't like to admit that for very good reason because it it just ain't so i mean they may have (laughs) trouble with a compulsive drive to do it but powerless they're not in fact the what i have found is when you help people to understand that addiction far from being a sign of being uh incapable is actually an attempt to, 
solution. It's, it's not a solution that works well, but it's an attempted solution. The way we all have ways, defenses that we deal with, with things, sometimes they don't work out well, but we, we need them emotionally. And it's not that, you're, uh, that you can't understand it. You can understand it. So what I wrote about in my first uh, couple of books and then in academic papers is basically this. Addiction can be understood as a response to feeling overwhelmingly helpless. And the kind of helplessness that people feel is different for different people, which is another reason why a one-size-fits-all program uh, like AA is, is unlikely to be helpful. Right. So when people can understand what they feel so helpless about, it's extremely helpful to them to predict the next time that they'll feel an addictive urge. After all, addictive urges are not random. They always follow something that makes you feel overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So um, when people do feel totally overwhelmed, and I sometimes use the analogy of being stuck in a cave-in, you know, where you're, mm-hmm. you're, the rocks are between you and the opening, you can't get out, right. you know, you're going to start to go wild, which is normal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to start yelling and screaming and pounding the rocks. That's a kind of normal rage reaction. It's a kind of survival mechanism. But it's very powerful. And at the moment that you're screaming and, and pounding the rocks, you don't really care that you might break your wrist, that the long-term consequences are that you'll have to be in a cast. It just doesn't matter at that point. Well, that kind of enormous rage at being helpless, which, again, is normal, right. is the kind of energy behind addiction. Because when people feel overwhelmingly helpless, they have to do something, just like pounding the rocks. And that explains, I think, the, the characteristics of addiction, the intense drive in addiction, the apparent uh, irrational concern for one's own welfare. It's because of that. But now the third part of the idea is, well, but why addiction? I mean, we can understand why somebody would pound at the rocks, but why have a drink? And that's because of something that in psychology we call displacement, or you could use the word substitution. What happens is, and this is, again, a normal human process, sometimes when we need to do something, we feel we have to do something, the something that we do isn't a direct action. It's an indirect action. It's a displaced action. Uh, Let me give you an example from literature. In Shakespeare's play Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, uh, if you're not familiar with the play, Lady Macbeth murders some people. (laughs) And then... She is filled with guilt about it. Yeah. And what she does is she starts, she develops a hand-washing compulsion. She rubs her hands over and over, and she says the famous line, out, out, damned it spot, meaning, how can I get this blood off my hands? Right. She, she has a compulsion to rub her hands over and over and over again. Wow, yeah. So that is an example of a compulsive behavior, which has a, an obvious meaning. She's basically saying, I... I, I I, I don't. There's, I'm a, there's no way I can undo my guilt about what I've done. So what I do is I, it, it's displaced into trying to get off this imaginary blood from my hands. And the energy behind it, which, seems, which is extremely intense for what seems to be an irrational activity, we can understand. So if it were Lady Macbeth that we were treating, we would say, maybe you could take a more direct action. You could say, you know, yes, you can't bring the dead back to life, but there are lots of things you could do to deal with your guilt. For one thing, she hadn't ever confessed it. She could go talk to people. Uh, mm-hmm. She could even perhaps accept some, uh, you know, some sanction because of it. 
whatever. She could even just think it through and, and get come to some peace in her own mind. But she doesn't do any of these things. Mm-hmm. Now, let me bring it back to addiction. <laughs> in, in addiction, <laughs> in addiction, what happens is uh, you have somebody, say, who is, uh, let's say you have a man who's driving his car, and he's cut off by another driver, and he's enraged, you know, and it, let's say he has alcoholism. So what he does, he's enraged, and there's nothing he can do. He feels utterly helpless, and he says, by God, I'm going to go and get a drink. And he pulls off at the next exit, and he walks into a bar, and he starts drinking. Well, that's a way in which he deals with his helplessness. Not a very good right. way, but it's a way. Right. Right. The key moment in it is the moment he decides to have a drink. Forget the drinking itself. At that moment, he has cured his helplessness for the moment because he's not helpless. Now mm-hmm. he says, I can do something that will take care of it. But like Lady Macbeth, the thing he does isn't a direct action. If, he had, if, if instead, let's say, he, instead he, he, he sped up and he wrote down the license plate number of the guy in front of him, and then he said, by God, I'm going to send in this guy's plate number to the registry, um, that would be a direct action, and he wouldn't feel the need to have a drink. But when people displace that need to do something to another action, we call that action the addiction. So yeah. we, we get what, what, what's, one of the things that's been so confusing is that we tend to think that the, the addictive focus, like alcohol, is magnetically drawing us, you know, as in AA's first step. We admitted we were helpless over right. alcohol. Alcohol has no power at all. It's that we turn to it. And um, when you understand things that way, then it, it makes it clear why people can shift from one addiction to another. It's not that they have a brand new diagnosis. It's that they've just shifted the displacement. So if my man, you know, who, who is in, feels overwhelmingly helpless because he was cut off for reasons of his own, you know, we don't know about him, but maybe mm-hmm, it, you know, mm-hmm. it attacked his manhood or something like right, that. Right, right, right. So let's say the next week someone else cuts him off, but this time instead of going to get a drink, he says, by God, I'm going to go to the nearest casino or the, and, and, and I'm going to start placing bets. No. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, he feels better. Well, if he did that repeatedly, we give him a new diagnosis. We call him a compulsive gambler. Every time he's upset, he goes and gambles. But, of course, it's the same human being. So all that's happened is that he's changed the displacement from alcohol to gambling. And this, this is not imaginary. This happens all the time. People shift their addictions from one to another. And they even, like in this example, shift from drug addictions to non-drug addictions like gambling or shopping. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so we know that what's important in addiction is what triggers this need to do something, what, tr- what makes you feel overwhelmingly helpless. So that's a kind of a long answer. That's what I wrote about my first two books about. And then you know, but people, can I ask you this? If, if somebody, yeah. can I just ask you this? Because you write the two books. If somebody's like in the middle of having trouble with alcohol or drugs, of the three books, like uh, The Heart of Addiction or even the first two, which one should you think somebody should read first? Breaking Addiction or The Heart of Addiction? Well, uh, yeah, I, 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 let me answer it this way, and then you can tell me which you think would be best. The Heart of Addiction came first, and it describes the whole theory. Uh, it also contains other information. I mean, it, it, for example, I reviewed all the studies on genetics of, of addiction and, and, and I talked about mm. diagnosing addiction. There are a lot of things in it. It's a pretty general discussion of addiction from a new perspective. Okay. So 
you know, I, 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 it's, it's what started it all, and it's, I hope it's a very clear explanation of the ideas. The second book I wrote as a kind of, um, um, I, we called it a handbook. It's, it, it has the same ideas, but it's, it separates it out, so it's a kind of uh, do-it-yourself manual, which mm-hmm. has seven steps to apply these ideas. So right. I suppose if you're, if, you're, if you're impatient, I would just read the second book, Breaking Addiction. <laughs> But, well, you know, I I think it's important. Maybe you know, I, let's have you on again, and we could once I read each of the other two. When I read mm-hmm. both of those, I could read one and have you back on, and then the other one. That for me, uh, now I stopped on my own, and then I didn't quite believe the powerlessness because I had quit on my own. And they said, "Oh, don't worry, you know, you can get to that later." But then later, I still wasn't getting to believing I was powerless, and so then they flipped their whole attitude and said to me, and I was very young, I was eighteen, nineteen. Well, you know, if you don't get the first half of the first step, you can't get the rest of the program. And I was like, what? I thought you said this is a take what you like and leave what you don't like and, you know, use what works. And and so it then became like I felt like somebody was, like, putting the screws to me. And sort of they broke me down. Like there was a whole, like, I felt like I was cracking. My whole, what I believed and everything's terrible. Looking back at what I went through after I was exhilarated by being abstinent, on my own, and then finding just wanting to hang around with other young people who were abstinent. I didn't want to use any drug. I didn't want to smoke pot anymore. I didn't want to drink. And this kind of getting to a place at about seven or eight months sober, then getting almost a year and being 13-stepped or sexually preyed on by two middle-aged men, um, which was absolutely disgusting and really put me into a horrible tailspin that took me a good year to come out of. Sure. And then another year to, I mean, when I look back now, it's really fucked up, which is why this film has to be made, because it not only is still going on, but it's worse. But getting back to dealing with core issues and knowing that I eventually had to deal with childhood abuse and, uh, you know, um, went, went into serious therapy when I was, you know, in 15 years abstinent or in the program, 15 years sober and really began to deal with something that I knew never was addressed in AA and gave up on the steps like there was some bullshit, you know what I mean? Like they just were ridiculous. And really did some tremendous healing and the, the work went on for, did, did rage work and I love what you're talking about because I see a lot of AA people, that I think it's a very angry group of people because they're told they're not allowed to get angry. But back to dealing yeah. with core issues, yeah, right? Besides what you're talking about, right? As it moves, if you've been abstinent, and then it didn't really, to me, I, I didn't shift any addictions. I didn't have any issues with yeah. my weight. I wasn't gambling. I wasn't shopping. You know what I mean? But uh, later on, years later, I certainly experienced that. Or even, you know, in making this film, the stress levels get so high sometimes, you know, wanting to eat comfort food or whatever and dealing with that kind of exactly what you're talking about. But um, the core issues, when addressed with many people who have been molested, that have been assaulted as children, um, that were beaten up by parents or whatever, had real trauma that never gets addressed. And also, by some, we're told it was their fault, which is really sick that goes on in AA. There are sponsors yeah. that have said that now. I wasn't told that. But um, it, it, throwing that into the mix, you know, uh, as somebody who is a scientist, a psychiatrist, and talking about, I hate the word alcoholism, as I told you, because I think AA is hijacked, and maybe I'll get over it, okay, in a few years from now. <laughs> uh, I, as I mentioned to you when we spoke, I, I don't, I'm not fond of the word either, because it makes that same mistake of labeling the problem according to the substance. I mean, right. you know, it's, in fact, I, I'm, not, I'm not crazy about the term substance abuse disorder. 
you know, in a sense, even though people abuse substances, it isn't a substance abuse disorder. It's an addiction that is focused on substances. And that, you know, it, it, it sounds like it's just you're just picking at words, but they mean different things. And right. the meaning is important because it, that's how you understand it. Well, I, I mean, I, I liked at the point when I started to say there was alcohol abuse and misuse and alcohol dependency. And it was clearly when I started to, you know, have debate with people, then they said to me, well, then you were never alcohol dependent, you know, for me as a young person. And I was like probably never an alcoholic, but I was labeled that by uh, other people. You know, when, when AA goes to a grade school, Alcoholics Anonymous came to my grade school and they did a massive outreach. Why were they going to children? Well, they're going to go plant seeds for their proselytization. So then you have teachers that were like, you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic. Well, no, I wasn't an alcoholic. I had trouble at home. Yeah. You know, I mean, there were problems in my, you know, in my home life that had nothing to do with me. And um, really, were my parents' fault, actually. You know what I'm saying? And so... Uh, I think that there's a lot of stuff that is very, very wrong with the whole picture of AA. That you, you know, you, you in your book is like you know a good punch in the face for Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> My book will be another one. There's another film coming out that you know it's not okay to go and proselytize a religion that's going to you know say that you're going to label children, you're going to label teenagers. Like here's another lie that was said in that Sarah T movie. Uh, and I contacted the filmmaker, who's become a big filmmaker since then, that, you know, teenagers can become an alcoholic in just 18 months like Bill Wilson did in 20 years. And I'm like, fuck you. That is such bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it, it, is. it is. Right? I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm asking the you amount of ignorance for... about addiction is, is just <laughs> incredible, especially because it causes so much trouble. You'd think that they would be more interested in it. One of the things we talked about in the book, actually, was how little interest there is in the professional addiction literature in trying to understand addiction in any better way. Mm -hmm. I mean, AA, we reviewed um, the last three or, I guess, four years, something like that, of the every major addiction journal to see if there was even a single article having to do with the, the psychology of addiction, the emotional factors that go into it. There was zero, nothing. So what are they writing well, about? They're writing about... First of all, incredibly silly, trivial things like one article we showed in the book. Uh, uh, somebody did a study of music in clubs, and they said if you have music on that mentions alcohol, more patrons drink. How does this advance the study of al of, of alcoholism? <laughs> you know, it's, it may be, it should have been in a marketing magazine. You know, right, but, right. Uh, that's the sort of nonsense that they that they have. And the other, of course, major problem is that everyone has taken up with this idea that uh, it's really a neurobiological problem and alcoholism is a chronic brain disease, like the yeah. national drug abuse has been pushing. And that is absolutely false, and we've known that for 40 years, and there are literally millions of counterexamples to that. We, we don't have to get into that now. But, but so, there's so much misinformation that uh, it's very it's very depressing. It is. Now, can you talk about, since you went there with genetics, you said something great in the film interview. Can you just want to oh, say, well, oh, it's a genetic issue? Yeah. Um, well, a, a, a real genetic disease is something like, uh, just to give an example, something like PKU, which is phenylketonuria. PKU is a disease that is present at birth. Uh, and uh, what it is, it's, it's a true genetic disease because it's caused by a defective gene. And 
you either have it or you don't have it. If you have the defective gene, then you get this, this illness. Uh, I, I won't go into it, but it's basically a, uh, you're missing a protein. So yeah. um, if you have the illness, then you get very, very sick, and these babies, if left untreated, develop mental retardation. Mm. But fortunately, everyone knows about PKU, so every baby in the United States is tested for it when they're born, and mm. there is fortunately a, a treatment. You can't change the gene, but you can avoid exposing the baby to the kind of chemical that causes the retardation. So, so, but that's a genetic disease. Again, you either get it or you don't get it. Right. But that's completely untrue for any addiction. You can't inherit an addiction at all. In fact, if you, and I think the example I gave you is that if you look at people who have exactly the same genes. And there are people like that. They're called twins. If you have yeah. an identical twin, you have the same genes. Well, right. it turns out if one twin has alcoholism, the odds are the other does not, just statistically. So that's an impossible finding if it's a genetic illness. So what does it mean? It means, and, and there's a lot more to the research because people have done all sorts of things uh, uh, to try to isolate the role of genetics. Uh, people look at children that have been adopted out of a family where the father has alcoholism. There's, there, there's a lot of stuff, and it's all in my first book, In the Heart of Addiction. But mm. the bottom line is um, no one has ever discovered a gene for alcoholism or any other addiction. And the studies, these studies are flawed in a different way. They're flawed because they define addiction by the use of whatever, um, if it's alcoholism, they define addiction as the use of alcohol, which sounds sensible, but it really isn't because some of the people that they're going to call uh, non-alcoholics are actually uh, using another focus. They have the same problem, but instead of alcoholism, they're, you know, they're, they're compulsively gambling or shopping or cleaning their houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, the definition of alcoholism isn't clear either. So is there any genetic loading? Can you have an increased susceptibility? Uh, maybe for some people, but that's not a genetic disorder. It, that kind of statement actually can be made about almost everything. Uh, there's, there's some genetic loading maybe from thousands or tens of thousands of genes that affect all of us, but it's, you can forget genetics when it comes to anything useful about addiction, either understanding it or predicting it. You can't inherit it. Now, are you going to be on Bill Maher or John Stewart? <laughs> well, <laughs> that would be lovely. I'm I'm willing, but it hasn't happened. That, that's my my, my dream. I want to see. Well, I think if you were if they approach Bill Maher on the um, religious aspect and how religious it is, you could maybe get there. John Stewart's fabulous. I mean, that's. I would love to see you on there. Just throw that out there. I want to. Uh, we have a few minutes left. I want to just touch on briefly in um, on the myth number five. One day at a time. You say here the notion of taking things one day at a time is also rather infantilizing, as it suggests that addicts cannot bear the burden of considering weeks or months without addiction. I mean, yeah. this is it's like this would make sense if absence were like lifting weights or running a marathon. Can you just address that? Because I really love how you word that. Yeah, I mean, the, the one-day-at-a-time idea is actually, uh, again, it, it's destructive because, I mean, the idea of it is don't look too far ahead, you'll get discouraged. But the problem is you have to look ahead if you're ever going to master the problem because, mm-hmm. as I was saying before, if uh, what I was writing about in, in, in my first two books, if you can look ahead, if you can know yourself well enough to know when that kind of situation is going to arise, 
that where you feel so emotionally overwhelmed, well, then you can be you can be armed in advance. You can say, mm-hmm. I know exactly when my next addictive urge is going to occur. It's going to occur on Monday at four o'clock. Well, if you know that, there are a million things you can do, including instead of taking the displaced action of drinking, you can take a direct action. And I've got uh, many examples in in both of the books actually of people who have done exactly that and showing you how you can not by you know some massive willpower but just by understanding it you can take a much more direct action and it turns out when people do that uh like the man writing down the license plate number that's a little bit of a silly example but when people right. can do it uh in other ways it turns out that their urge to drink or to take a pill goes away because mm-hmm. they don't need it anymore. They're, they've solved their helplessness by doing something that's actually more direct and usually more effective. So uh, looking ahead is a very, very good idea. And, yes, it is infantilizing to say, don't try to do that. You can't stand it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just really, you know, I, I love the book uh, because you're a psychiatrist, you're a doctor, you're a scientist, and yet it was such an easy read. Uh, you know, it didn't have that uh, too much. It was, wasn't too heady. Even though you're you're so bright and you know use a lot of words that you know I'm like ooh that's a nice way of putting it you know <laughs> how could I add that into my regular vernacular of my conversation but you know I really really love it now I'd like to say for somebody who is not an AA you really do understand it you really do have it down how come you know it so well well you know I've been treating people who've gone to AA for uh, let's see since the 70s mm-hmm. so. I have seen a huge number of people, and of course I have been to some AA meetings just to see what they were all about. Right. Um, but they tell me, you know, I mean, I, yeah. get, I get very, very clear reports. And even in the book, you know, we have those people telling us their own accounts. And so, yeah, those so, are great so, stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you pay attention yeah. to people, you'll learn what goes on there. Right, right. Uh, I am so happy that I, you know, got introduced to you by, I think, with Stanton Peel and that you're out here. Now, do you practice still psychiatry? I, I do, but at the moment I am still um, talking with people who I was treating when I came from Boston. Uh, at the moment, I, I'm not yeah. taking on new uh, new people. Um, that may change in the future. Okay. If you ever do, let us know, because we're always looking to um, resources for people here in the um, we have 90 seconds left. I want to thank, so we have been talking to um, Lance Dodis, and uh, he is the author of The Sober Truth, new book out. You can get it on uh, Amazon, right, or on your website. It's the Sober Truth, Debunking the it's Bad Science. now out in bookstores as of yesterday. As in bookstores, okay, Debunking the Bad Science Behind 12-Step Programs in the Rehab Industry. Are you going to do a signing in Los Angeles anywhere? Um, I would like to. It hasn't been set up yet. Again, the book just came out yesterday, so I'm not sure what's going to happen. Okay. All right. Well, you let us know. We'll be in touch, and we'll okay. have you back on when I finish reading your other books. Again, thank you okay. so much, Lance, for being on the show. Thank you, thank everybody, you for, for listening. Yes, yeah, so you're welcome. Uh, listening to Blog Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. Uh, I'm Monica Richardson, and I am your host. And I will be back here next week, where we will be talking about. Uh, the God, is it religious or spiritual? Is it white or is it snowflake? As I tear up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with a fellow blogger proving that it is in, indeed highly religious. Good night, everybody. I mean, good day. Usually it's at night. We'll see everybody next week. Okay, Lance, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.